COVID deaths nearly double in a week. These deaths could have been prevented, um, and they should not happen as you know many of these people were unvaccinated. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. New legislation to allow more housing units causes more debate. California is short at least 1.8 million, as much as 3 million housing units. So the most basic argument is by allowing more housing to be built, this bill would allow California to get a little bit closer to its housing goals. Making sure students with special needs get the education they need. And our summer music series continues with DJ Artistic. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry, the Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. As the more transmissible Delta variant continues to spread, San Diego County's death toll from COVID has nearly doubled in one week. County officials report 49 people died over the past week. Most of them were unvaccinated. Joining me with more is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, welcome. Hey, Jade. So the county was reporting single-digit COVID-19 deaths for a while, even with the Delta variant. What do county officials say is causing this latest rise in numbers? Well, we have seen a, a sort of steady increase in cases, you know, averaging usually about a thousand reported per day. Um, we know that there's still some hesitancy out there for people to get vaccinated. There is the more contagious Delta variant, which we know is definitely the dominant strain, not only in California, but here in San Diego County, too. Uh, we're seeing a lot more people get sick of uh, people who are unvaccinated, mainly going to the hospitals. Um, and keep in mind that there's a, you know, this whole pandemic, there's a lag factor, right? So you get a case, um, you know, it maybe takes a few days to get some symptoms. Um, if those symptoms get worse, you'll go to the hospital. So maybe not necessarily surprising that we're seeing the increase in deaths uh, following, you know, sort of a a steady uh, increase in cases. Only four people out of the 49 who died this week were fully vaccinated. How does that impact the county's vaccination efforts? Well, the county's public health officer, Dr. Wilma Wooten, you know, she's been saying this for a long time, especially now that the wide availability of the vaccines, you know, she says that these deaths could have been prevented um, and they should not happen as, you know, many of these people were unvaccinated. That's a message that we keep hearing over and over again, um, not only from the hospital systems, but from our local public health officials. um, And we'll see if people will heed that advice. And one of the things driving vaccine hesitancy is misinformation. The county just came up with a resolution to address that. What do you know about it? 
Yeah, so that resolution passed after hours and hours of public comment at a recent board meeting. Um, there was, you know, just under 200 people that came out to spoke on this specific item. Uh, basically, they ended up voting three to two to declare uh, misinformation a public health crisis, you know, saying that, um, you know, this misinformation, whether it be about, you know, certain medicines to take, that the vaccines don't work, that the vaccines are not fully approved, um, that the vaccines are killing more people than COVID, um, that is prolonging the pandemic. It's causing, you know, more vaccines vaccine hesitancy. It's leading to more people going to the hospitals. So really kind of calling that out to try to stifle some of this. And basically what they're going to be doing is putting more county resources, um, whether that be things like flyers or even like commercials, uh, to go out there and try to combat some of this misinformation um, in the hopes of trying to better equip people so that, you know, maybe not listening uh, to some of their friends or some of the things that they read on websites, uh, trying to get the best information from not only our local hospital officials, but our uh, county public health doctors too, to make an informed decision. Um, Obviously, they're hoping that they get vaccinated. So where does the county currently stand with vaccination efforts? So we recently hit a milestone. Um, There was a goal that the county officials put out months and months ago, um, trying to get 75% of the eligible population, you know, keep in mind right now, that's, you know, we can't have kids younger than 12 get vaccinated. Um, And we hit 75% of the eligible population. That's 2.1 million San Diegans that are now fully vaccinated. Now we know that there's a lot more people that have at least one dose, about 85% of the eligible population. That's about 2.4 million San Diegans. Um, There was a report out earlier in the year about some people skipping their second doses, like tens of thousands of them. And Jade, we do know that it's important to get that second dose, uh, health officials say, because of the more contagious Delta variant, that one dose just doesn't cut it. And if you want that full protection, you're going to need that second dose. You know, the hope was that the FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine would help get more people vaccinated. Is that what's happening at all? Yeah, so county officials say that they're seeing a slight uptick, and they were, you know, sort of hoping that they might see a lot more people coming out to get vaccinated. Um, But we do know data from the White House that nationally, there's definitely been a big increase, you know, even uh, when we look at it matching up with numbers from late June, when many, many more people were getting vaccinated. uh, We do know that there's a holiday coming up here, Labor Day. um, So they're hoping that a lot of people, I mean, obviously, if you get vaccinated now, it still takes some time. Um, Even if you get the Johnson & Johnson, the one dose, uh, there's still a lag time before that effectiveness goes in, uh, but really hoping to see a lot more people vaccinated, especially if they're going to be going out and doing like big parties on Labor Day. What can you tell me about the people who recently died from COVID? What were their age ranges and health conditions like? Well, Jade, we know that 41 people had underlying medical conditions, and we know that four people did not. Now, uh, you you heard there's been, you know, 49 recent deaths. Uh, There's still at least four of those people that have medical history still pending. And when we look at the age ranges here, um, you know, something we heard about a lot is protecting the elderly. Uh, We do know that 25 of the people who died uh, were age 70 or older, some of those people in their 80s. Uh, But we also saw some people dying in their 60s. And then we saw even younger than that, uh, we saw seven people die who are in their 50s and five people who are in their 40s. Um, And keep in mind, you know, uh, Dr. Wooten, the county's public health officer, saying uh, that a lot of these could have been prevented uh, had there been a vaccination. Where does the county stand with infections right now as a whole? So we're seeing uh, uh, about a 1,000 a day. You know, sometimes that can fluctuate, you know, on, on some weekend numbers. You see some as high as 1,800, uh, sometimes around 900. Um, and it wasn't too long ago that we were, you know, in the hundreds of cases. I mean, it was very, very low. Um, but, you know, as we've reopened a lot more, some people have kind of laxed down on COVID, sort of taken down their masks figuratively. Um, and, and actually, um, we're starting to see a steady increase in cases. Now, it's sort of been plateauing. You know, we're not seeing that number hit the 2,000s 
ones um, in, in cases yet, uh, but certainly uh, concerning for public health officials. According to the county, where are community outbreaks happening? So we're seeing um, quite a bit of community outbreaks, um, even, you know, as many as 50 or even, you know, 60 plus per weeks, which is near uh, the outbreak numbers uh, that we saw during the winter surge when, you know, hospitalizations were close to or hospitals, excuse me, were close to being overwhelmed. Um, we know in the past seven days, we had 66 community outbreaks. Um, you know, a lot of those were in business settings. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we know uh, August is back to school month, September back to school month. Um, we've seen um, a lot of outbreaks in daycare, preschool, childcare settings. I've also seen some in some school settings, even though, you know, kids are supposed to be wearing those masks, at least indoors. Some districts have gone upon themselves to have people uh, wear masks outdoors. Uh, we're still seeing um, a lot of uh, outbreaks in restaurants and bar settings. Um, so definitely concerning for public health officials. It's a trigger. Um, if you remember back at that color code tier system, it is a trigger for us right now. Um, but we'll see if anything's done uh, to try to stifle that. And we can't relay this information enough. So where and how can people get vaccinated? There's still a number of places that people can go to get vaccinated. You know, you can go on the county's website and find one of these county sites. You know, they partner with different uh, community centers where, where they do it. Um, but then also, too, if you want, you can just go to like a pharmacy, you know, Rite Aid, Walgreens, CVS, uh, even Walmart still offering vaccinations. So there's multiple places that people can go. The information's out there. County public health officials are doing, you know, another sort of big push here, especially with this disinfo campaign. We're going to see uh, even more of a push here to get people vaccinated. Um, and there's still, you know, you look at the numbers, you know, we have 2.1 million uh, residents that are fully vaccinated. We know that there's uh, 3.1 million people in the county, you know, subtract some kids. So we're definitely getting close, um, but we're not uh, completely there yet. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jade. One of the most contentious housing measures to come out of the California legislature is now on its way to the governor's desk. This week, the state Senate approved Senate Bill 9, which allows up to four units to be built on lots zoned for single-family houses. Supporters of the measure say it will ease California's housing shortage. Opponents say it will change the nature of neighborhoods and decrease property values. But a close analysis of the bill by Cal Matters finds it may not have as much impact as many people think. Joining me is Cal Matters housing reporter Manuela Tobias. And Manuela, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much. What would this bill allow an owner to build on what is now zoned as a single family lot? Basically, what this bill would allow is two homes or a duplex where currently only one is allowed. Uh, the other part of this bill allows a property owner to split their lot and build two homes on that second parcel as well, so long as the new parcel is at least 1,200 square feet. Um, so that's how you end up with four units. And um, the, the, the cap of four units also includes attached units, uh, also known as ADUs or granny flats. Those are all included in the four unit cap. And the property owner would no longer need approval from a local zoning commission, right? The project would still... Uh, have to be approved by 
by the local jurisdiction, but that that sort of largest hurdle would be out of the way, which is the, the zoning change. Now, tell us more about the arguments for and against SB 9. First of all, what do supporters say easing zoning restrictions on single family lots would do to help the housing crisis? Part of so about two thirds of California is now zoned for single family homes. And California is short at least 1.8 million, uh, as much as 3 million housing units. So the most basic argument is the land where it's most possible to build housing, it's not really legal to do so right now. And so by allowing more housing to be built, this bill would allow California to, to get a little bit closer to its housing goals. And there's been a lot of activism against this measure. What's the main argument of people opposed to the bill? There are many uh, cities and local governments who oppose the measure because uh, they say that it takes away local control and local um, decision making. And basically, it's the state overstepping their their power there. Um, There's also neighborhood groups who are very concerned about what this could mean um, for the, the vision of neighborhoods right now. Um, they feared that there might not be um, enough of infrastructure to allow uh, for more density. So think uh, parking spaces, sewer, basically what would change? What would the fabric of the neighborhood look like if now you have two or three or four homes where there's only one Now, in your article breaking down this controversy, you go deep into the origins of single-family zoning, and you find that it has racist roots. Yeah, so single-family zoning actually uh, originated in Berkeley in 1916, and the uh, designation was used to block a Black-owned dance hall from moving into a primarily white neighborhood. So the Supreme Court had outlawed banning people moving into a neighborhood based on race, but this was one way to sort of get around that. And by only allowing single family homes to to exist in this type of neighborhood, not only did they block that dance hall from moving in, but also multifamily units, um, which were more uh, affordable and more commonly occupied by people of color. So single family zoning after that was quickly adopted by cities across the United States. So for some supporters of the bill, they also see this as a measure to uh, kind of a symbolic act to reverse some of that racism that where all this began. Well, despite that heritage and despite all the present controversy, your reporting found that SB 9 may only have a limited impact on both housing stock and single-family lots around California. Tell us about that. The Turner Center at UC Berkeley conducted a study where they looked at what would be economically feasible to build um, were, were it legal. And what they found was looking at land values and and, um, development costs that building more than one housing unit would only be realistic in about 410,000 parcels in California. And that's about 5% of land 
that now is zoned for single family houses. So more than 90% of parcels wouldn't really be touched here. And we're talking about what's economically feasible, not necessarily what people would choose to do uh, were this legal. So overall, what the researchers found is you wouldn't see the wholesale bulldozing of single family homes across the state. This would only take place in a select amount of parcels where all of the economic factors really lined up. And the other part that they found, which was interesting, is building a second unit was way more likely on the majority of these parcels than a third or fourth, which is what the bill ultimately allows. What about a similar piece of legislation, SB 10? And that would streamline when cities choose to rezone lots up to 10 units. What's the difference between SB 10 and SB 9? One of the main differences between the two bills is that SB 10 would have to be voted on by a local jurisdiction first before being adopted. So unlike SB 9, which applies statewide, SB 10 is a tool for local control where a city would choose to use that rezoning tool, but would not be obliged to do so. Another key difference is that SB 10 would apply in areas close to transit hubs and infill urban development. So once again, not necessarily statewide, but only in these much denser urban areas. Is the governor expected to sign these bills? So both bills have already passed some of their biggest hurdles, which was getting out of the state legislature. And now they're pending a signature from Governor Gavin Newsom. He hasn't made it clear whether or not he's going to sign these bills. But it's a particularly contentious topic, that of single family zoning. And given the recall that's going on, that might put some extra pressure on him. But he's going to have until October 10th to decide whether to sign these bills. I've been speaking with Cal Matters housing reporter Manuela Tobias. And Manuela, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. 
Thousands of students across the county are back on school campuses this fall, making up for lost time in their learning. The COVID shutdown was especially challenging for children with special needs who now return to classes in person after more than a year without being around their teachers and friends. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez introduces us to one mother determined to make sure her son gets the education he needs. Alejandro Blanco is a good speller. He can write his mother's phone number, too. That's something he's learned with her help right here at their dining room table. I know I had to take care of my son. And since then, I love, I love my son with all my heart. And having me, his mommy, and do everything that is in my power to, for him to be okay. E. E. Maria Lopez is a single mother raising her son with some help from his grandmother, who he calls mom. Maria is his mommy. Alejandro likes to be called Alex. Monday morning, he joined other students in San Diego Unified for the first day of school. He is now a freshman at Madison High School. And on September 9th, he turns 14 years old. His mother remembers the delight and the distress of the day he was born when the doctor gave her the news. Me, I was like hoping that he was fine and I'd see him when I saw him. He was so beautiful. He told me that he has Down syndrome. So I always ask God, like, I hope my son, he only had like a little bit. With the Down syndrome diagnosis, Alex has received special education support and therapy throughout his elementary and middle school years. That includes an annual individual education program called an IEP. That's a federal legal document that outlines goals and services for each student with special needs. Regular meetings for parents and teachers are part of the program. The COVID shutdown forced teachers to scramble to hold IEP meetings online or by phone. I think they thought the federal government was going to come in and give them a pass for all of this. Jennifer Rail taught special education for 30 years. Now she's a professional special education advocate who supports parents during IEP meetings with school administrators and teachers. Really, parents just want to know um, where their kids are at, if they've regressed during this time, um, if they've made progress with virtual learning. They just want answers. This fall, San Diego Unified is offering online learning through its Virtual Academy program and will also offer a choice of online or in-person IEP meetings. Fine. While Alex made some progress while learning at home, his mother is happy that he's at Madison High School now, where he has friends. I want the best for him. And I, want, I know he can learn a lot. If you, if, you help, if you work with him, I know he can do a lot of things and, the, and he can be, be successful, for, successful. For, for his, and for later on. Yes. Show us what you got, Alex. Later on for this young man means after he turns 21 and ages out of the school support system as an adult. While that's seven years away for Alex, Maria Lopez says every semester counts. She feels most comfortable expressing the love for her son in her first language. Adoro es, es todo para mí. Es un amor, un amor incondicional, un amor tan grande que yo siento por él. 
love modeled and learned in the most important lesson of all. Joining me is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., welcome. Thank you. Why was the time spent in virtual learning a particular challenge for special needs students? Well, as you can imagine, uh, many of them are nonverbal. So uh, communication uh, to them and with them is uh, through motion, through connection, through touch, through um, one-on-one contact. And with uh, COVID uh, raging and uh, classrooms shut down, that made it that much more difficult. So then teaching was through uh, a Zoom lens. And uh, without that physical connection, that's where the the challenge really came. Did special ed teachers then employ new strategies to engage their students online? Well, the good news is there are a lot of online um, uh, programs and supports for uh, children with special needs, especially those who are mod uh, too severe uh, in their diagnosis. So that helped uh, cut and paste kind of activities online uh, and, the, and you know, visuals that could help them learn. But again, there is nothing like being in a classroom with a student face-to-face uh, so that you can see uh, what they are uh, attaining in the way of knowledge and what they are not. Now, parents of special ed students must have had to shoulder a lot of the responsibility for their child's learning during this whole time of the pandemic. Absolutely. Uh, They are the heroes uh, of this situation. Uh, As I mentioned in my uh, feature, uh, the mother of the child that we profiled um, went in and worked graveyard shifts in order to be present for her son at home um, to work with him in various activities after the Zoom class uh, with uh, his teacher and fellow students was, was finished. Now, in your report, you spoke about an annual IEP, or Individual Education Program, for special needs students. How important is that for a student's success in school? Well, let me first say that it is a legal, federal legal document that specifies what this child should uh, receive in the way of services and therapies and so forth. So it's important uh, for the teacher and administrators to follow literally to the letter, um, those services that are required. And they're renewed uh, and reviewed every year. Uh, And then we, there's something called a triennial every three years where a really uh, in-depth analysis is done on the student and various uh, tests are conducted uh, to see where they're at at that point. And in what ways could a year of remote learning impact an IEP for a special ed student? Well, quite frankly, um, when the shutdown happened in March of 2020, um, that put administrators and teachers in a scramble to figure out what do we do now. And many of them attempted to do it through a telephone or through a Zoom call um, in order to reach the deadline because each student's IEP is due every year. And if you go past that due date, uh, then you are in uh, dangerous territory uh, uh, and it becomes a legal matter uh, and the district could be sued for not following the IEP. And if a student has regressed during the time of the pandemic, is that IEP changed then? Yes, it's, that's the reason that they update them every year. Uh, where is the student? Has something emotional happened with the student? Is there an event with the family uh, that might have caused them uh, to regress? All of that is assessed 
at the annual uh, IEP. And there's several members there. There's somebody from administration, like a vice principal. There would be the special ed teacher and maybe a, you know, a, a, a therapist who might be working with the child. All of them work together in what they call the IEP team and the parent, of course, to uh, come up with the best solutions for the child. Now, Maria Lopez and her son Alejandro are eager for him to get back into a classroom setting. But are there some special needs kids who are doing well with virtual learning and and basically just want to stay there? Um, I wouldn't say uh, that that is with this particular population, virtual learning uh, can only be more of a supplement to anything that they're doing in person. Uh, It is just so critical when working with a child who is nonverbal to be able to communicate with them in other ways uh, in order for them to learn. So the statistics will come out, you know, at some point, but uh, at this point, in-person is really the best way to uh, service uh, a special needs child in order to get them uh, on the right track. Now, I assume 14-year-old Alejandro is vaccinated, but what about younger special needs students? Is there any special concern about their safety going back to the classroom? Absolutely. Um, And, you know, that's the concern that so many parents have. Is my child safe in a classroom? Um, And it's really uh, the question of the day, the concern of the moment, you know, and it's up to the parent to decide. Uh, Miss Lopez is very committed to having her son socialize because, as you can imagine, special needs children, part of their need is to socialize and not be isolated or, um, you know, kept away from, you know, that process. So she is committed to do whatever it takes in order to have her son um, back in a classroom and communicating with his teachers and classmates. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. Thank you so much. Thank you. The County Board of Supervisors in mid-August unanimously voted to explore reinstating the long-defunct County Arts and Culture Council. Supervisors Nora Vargas and Nathan Fletcher put the proposal in front of the board, which many advocates in the arts community have been pushing for years. I spoke with Supervisor Nora Vargas to discuss what the new entity would look like and how it might work. Here's that interview. When the former commission, the, the Public Arts Advisory, was shut down in the early 1990s, San Diego became the largest county in the state without an arts entity. Uh, what do we know about why it was eliminated? It was a different time, a different board. And um, what happens sometimes is, you know, when counties are faced with challenges, they make decisions and the arts uh, seem to suffer. And so I think that as a board, we you know we're very committed to really energizing this piece of history that I think is so important to our communities. And as you know, arts and culture are integral to boosting our economy and 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 really this creative and innovative approach, I think is what we need for our community. So I am thrilled that we unanimously pass this this um, board letter. What was the impact of that advisory board being eliminated on arts and culture in San Diego? 
One of the big challenges is that what I have heard, especially from community members during the campaign uh, trial, was that they felt that there was not one regional unified voice advocating uh, for the arts and culture in the county of San Diego. And the economic impact uh, on our communities has been huge. And since the county eliminated the Public Arts Advisory Council, I think it was in 1993, I, I feel that there was a void and a lack of opportunities for a lot of amazing local artists to really uh, have opportunities here in the region. Let's hear from one of the county's members who spoke at the Board of Supervisors meeting earlier this month. Here's Michelangelo Camacho, the executive director of VAPA, or the Visual and Performing Arts Foundation in the San Diego Unified School District. Coming from a poor farming village and growing up in a low-income community, I can say that kids like me need art education in our public schools and communities because it gives us safe ways to play and provides a healthy coping mechanism to deal with all sorts of tremulous um, situations. But most importantly, it inspires us to aspire for more. And I believe San Diego needs an art and culture commission at the county level because having an advocate at that level will allow the distribution of resources to be made in a strategic, coherent, and powerful way. So what or who drove getting this proposal to the board? I had a lot of conversations throughout the campaign trail with many arts and culture um, community leaders. And time and time again, I heard from them and they, they, this is what they were asking for. And they actually had been working in coalition together to identify um, how we can really come together to ensure that we actually um, move forward with an arts uh, council for the County of San Diego. And what does it tell us about where the needs are in the creative community? Well, that's one of the one of the greatest things that we're going to do with this board letter that we've introduced is that we are asking the chief administrative officer to really assess the role the county plays in arts and culture, including our community enhancement grants and award and awards that we've done right through our arts and culture programs. Where has it gone? Where where um, where have we invested in the past? Uh, we have also want to make sure that we identify opportunities to leverage state and federal funding, um, and then really uh, what was really important for this. And the name of the board letter was reimagining vibrant communities throughout arts and culture, right? And I think that says it all. When we get back our report in 90 days, we're really looking at how do we increase equity and access to the arts and culture in the region and really capitalize on the economic potential of an increased arts and culture program throughout the county to really build equity. And so it's not just throwing the word equity around, but really building equity into everything that we do, including the arts and culture, because we know that the arts can change a young person's life. Mm -hmm. So what work will the council be doing? First and foremost, it's actually the chief administrative officer who's going to be doing the initial work to uh, do the assessment, uh, figure out where have we spent our money, what have we done, and then is the, the recreation of the council. And my goal is that we actually have an office of arts and culture um, at the County of San Diego that really is going to be looking at future partnerships to really elevate and highlight the leverage of our thriving arts scene locally. And I think one important item that we can't forget is our binational community, right? We are a binational region and there is power in really elevating um, also the arts and culture community on both sides of the border together. So what have you seen or heard from artists and arts organizations about the reality of funding and economic survival during the last few years? 
particularly under COVID, it's been very difficult, right? I mean, many of them have been able to apply for grants um, and have been able to survive, but a lot of the programming that they did specifically with schools and with uh, our underserved uh, communities, uh, it, it really took a, a really a backseat, right, during during COVID because they had to follow protocols. And so it's been really tough for them. And so what we want to do is we want to do everything that we can in our power to make sure that the county of San Diego is leading the way in ensuring that our funding not only our local funding is infused into our community, but that we are also looking at how do we get additional uh, resources from the national state level to bring those resources into into our communities now. Because um, now more than ever, I think it's important. If you think about how the arts are suffering right now, I think it's really important for us to really think about how we infuse additional resources for them to thrive. Mm. How will this county agency be distinct from the city of San Diego's Commission for Arts and Culture? The city of San Diego is only one city. We have a lot of cities in our county and, and it goes beyond the city of San Diego. We're talking about all of the different cities throughout the county need to have access to these resources and opportunities. And they don't have to necessarily compete. It's a regional approach to really looking at how the arts can be funded um, the right way uh, as we're moving forward. I've been speaking with Supervisor Nora Vargas. Supervisor Vargas, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome to Midday Edition and another installment of our KPBS Summer Music Series. Renowned DJ, event curator, and music producer DJ Artistic has earned a reputation as a community builder and architect of the San Diego hip-hop scene, who for over two decades has curated events that helped countless artists grow and shine. His contributions to San Diego music are immeasurable. DJ Artistic is a four-time San Diego Music Award winner, including for Best DJ, He is also an artist, producer in his own right, and has toured with underground hip-hop legend Abstract Rude and San Diego all-star hip-hop group Deep Rooted, alongside legendary acts like Souls of Mischief and Public Enemy. DJ Artistic joins us now. Welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Great to have you. Now, how did you discover your passion for DJing? was something that I always wanted to do as a kid and dreamed about. So I, I think my earliest influence might have been Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. He's the DJ, I'm the rapper. Yeah, we're going to get started like this. You know it, you know it. Everybody put your hands in the air. Let me see everybody put your hands in the air. And listening to that album and hearing 
Jazzy Jeff live at Union Square, like cutting up the records and not knowing how he was doing that. sound just captivated me. So DJing was the next thing that I kind of gravitated towards. Are y'all down with that or what? How did you get your name, DJ Artistic? Abstract Rude gave me that name, DJ Artistic. We're actually out at an industry event. Uh, I was living with him in LA. My first time at like an industry event when he was signed to Grand Royal, the Beastie Boys label, subsidiary of Capitol Records. And he introduces me as DJ Artistic, his DJ. And that's how that name stuck with me. And my, my real name is Arthur the Third, So, you know, it, it worked in both ways. And you toured with Abstract Rude as his DJ. But you also produced the song 213 to 619 adjacent. 213 being the L.A. area code and 619 San Diego. Tell us about that era. Yeah, that was a really great time. We were inspired by a lot of things that were going on in L.A. from the underground as well as inspired by a lot of things that were happening and things that we were doing here in our San Diego underground. So the soul culture was connected, you know, through the freeway, through the zip codes. And one of my mentors, DJ Fingers, gave me a record, said, hey, you could do something with it. I sampled it and made a beat out of it. He liked it. We recorded it. And next thing you know, he's calling me saying, hey, the record's coming out on this compilation. And so it was like a a dream come through. It it just kind of happened out of nowhere. 
After becoming a DJ and touring with Abstract Rude, you decided to begin curating events starting in the 1990s with The Breakthrough, uh, followed by The Scene in the 2000s and most recently Hip Hop Battle Bot. You know, what drew you to start curating events? Well, not having your own place to do your art. You know, basically the culture having such a bad stigma or like a black eye. And so a few of my mentors played in bands and things like that and had a venue. And thankfully that they believed in what we were doing and knew what it was like not to have a place to do your music. They opened up their venue to me. And so I took the opportunity and created a platform for all aspects of the culture. B-boying or dancing, graffiti or art, DJing, uh, rapping or emceeing, making beats. And we had a platform to keep an extension of the culture because for us, hip hop, it's so important. It helped us get through so many things. For some of us, it's our older brother or our parent, you know, or our role model or something that we can find solitude in to get through things. So I just wanted to give back because it gave me so much. So that was the focus of creating and curating an event for everyone to benefit from our scene. Mm, You know, during the pandemic and last year's outcry for social justice, you briefly stepped away from curating events to get creative and start a music collective called the Solidarity Band. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I really thought that because I was in the community and I worked with so many people that my message during that time would be encouraging dialogue Uh, listening with compassion, understanding, and respect in the name of solidarity. And because I knew so many musicians that work with so many people, it just came up to me to create the solidarity band so that we can heal and we can use it as our therapy and we can talk about different things and different perspectives and maybe have a different ideology, but still be able to coexist through music. And so the solidarity band was formed for musicians and artists to come together for the common goal of us all uniting for peace, unity, love, understanding, compassion, and respect. This is Break the Chains, written and sang by Crown XO as part of the Solidarity Band Collective. We've been marching on weary souls And our spirits have felt every step We'll keep marching till victory's won For centuries and we can't stop yet It's our duty to fight for our freedom America, now's the time to choose We must love and support one another We've got nothing to lose, oh Break the chains, break the chains, break the chains Break the chains, break the chains Break the chains, break the chains, break the chains Break the chains, break the chains All right, that was Crown XO with Break the Chains as part of the Solidarity Band Collective. Uh, You know, you've won the award for Best DJ by the San Diego Music Awards and your events company is called San Diego Best DJs. Tell us what your company specializes in. Private events, corporate events, grand openings, live music, entertaining, anything that you need to make your vision come to life for your event, whatever you need, we can provide you a high quality five-star entertainment. All right. And now, you know, I got to ask, you have several vehicles um, that you use for your purpose. Why do you do what you do? I think it's important to give back because, again, hip hop 
and the culture has given so much to me. And I like to see people's growth and help them um, be a part of their journey because people have done the same thing to me and it would be selfish not to give it back. All right. I've been speaking with event curator, DJ and music producer, DJ Artistic. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. It was a pleasure, an honor, and a privilege. What's up, party people in the place to be? Gather around for a minute and check the MC. I really don't know what you expected from me, but I was born and raised to rock over the BC. Me and my homies got some tight-ass raps. Tight it's time we put the home team back on the map. All you radio stations play a whole lot of crap. It's like I'm hungry at the table and you feed me scraps. So this one's for the people who can ride the wave and go into the battle and come out unscathed. See my only regret is that I probably never gave enough back to hip hop for life to save. So ride along with us as we lift this shot. For anybody who put it down, we never forgot. Till we give it all we got, cause that's how we was taught. And it only takes a second just to blow up the spot. Cause I'm a B-boy, I'm the real McCoy. I'm chocolate all over like an I'm a joy. I'm a DJ Artistic performs at Silence is Golden, silent disco every first and third Wednesday at Courtyard Downtown. Go to kpbs.org slash summer music series for the full interview and for a video interview of DJ Artistic. They barely good enough of us for their needs. Our fans, some R&B, most hip-hop and rave. I'm dark-skinned, baby, and I get your sunbathe. Once the track slayed, that just made. I become a slave to the beat, don't know how to behave. We kept it true, what else did you expect us to do? Now I'm backing you to come and spin a record or two. I'm on the proud in the here and now, I'll be cold. To you so-called MCs who want to get bold. You'll be showed in the worst ways. I'm seasoned for battle because of the Project Blow Thursdays. I'm a wordsmith, now that we're settled into two. We gotta represent somehow. somehow There's talent in the ghetto that we'll have to employ With melanin in them they'll seek to destroy I'm a root boy, I'm the real McCoy I'm chocolate all over like an almond joy I'm the root boy, I'm the real McCoy I'm chocolate all over like an almond joy I'm a root boy, I'm a real McCoy uh, Chocolate all over like an almond joy I'm the root boy, I'm the real McCoy You wanna make noise, make noise Boys make some noise. B girls make some noise. It's work, uh, work uh, it out. Uh, work it out. Working. Yeah. Uh, uh. Like got, that, cause we was at the party when the jam was live And it really wasn't popping until we arrived We was hanging out at the club before we could drive With big afros like the Jackson 5 uh, Coming out the house late, making it home safe B-boys in the place, just had to show my face Soon after that, I discovered my instrument As soon as I picked her up, we got intimate Big up to my homeboys who know this tune Microphone mic, I'm a near teaspoon AC alone, just stepped in the room Now we know the flavor in here, the party resumes, cause I'm a B-boy, I'm the real McCoy, I'm chocolate all over like an almond joy, I'm a B-boy, I'm the real McCoy, I'm chocolate all over like an almond joy, I'm a B-boy, uh, yeah, respect to the fallen soldiers in hip-hop, uh, and all the fallen soldiers across the world in the struggle, alright, easy.